One of my uh, favorite stories to share is about the kid who uh, one day really deci decided he wanted a bicycle. And I've shared this story, it's been a while, uh, but for those of you that haven't heard it, uh, he decided he really wanted a bicycle. The problem was he wasn't sure how to pray. He figured I should pray to God to give me what I want. And so he turns on the TV one day, to, uh, turns into some Christian programming, thinking I gotta learn how to pray so that God will give me the bicycle. And so uh, what he finds is this really liturgical, high church vestments, uh, incense, you know, really big priestly words. And so he's like, okay, okay, this sounds like really magistral, magisterial, mysterious. And it's like, maybe I got to pray the way these people are speaking and God will give me a bite. And so that night he gets on his hands and knees and prays at his bedside. He says, almighty and eternal God, if it is in your vast and infinite plan that I get myself a bicycle, may it be according to your perfect will that I may sing the excellent, ex your excellencies every day that I write it, world without end, Amen. Goes to bed, really excited, wakes up in the morning, runs outside of the driveway, there's no bicycle. So he's discouraged, maybe, maybe I prayed the wrong prayer, maybe I gotta pray a different way, and so he turns the TV on again, and this time he comes across some uh, prosperity gospel, name it and claim it, God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise type of a thing, and he's like, these people seem really confident in what they're doing, maybe I need to pray like that. And so uh, that night he gets on his knees before his bed, he says, dear Jesus, I declare my need for a bicycle, and I declare also that it be silver and blue, and I demand that it be here tomorrow morning by 6 a.m. because you want your children to prosper and be happy, and I need my bicycle to be happy. Thank you. Amen. Wakes up in the morning, runs outside. There's no bicycle. So at this point, he's really upstated, uh, upset. He's really frustrated. Uh, his, he comes into the living room. His mom watches him. He, she sees that her young child is really upset. She watches out as he goes into her bedroom. Uh, a few minutes later, he sees that she leaves his bedroom, and she has, he has a statue of Mary under his arm, and he goes outside. Now, he's gone for about 10 minutes, and then finally, about 10, 15 minutes later, the kid comes back inside. He goes to his room, and his mom notices the statue of Mary is no longer with him. And so she's kind of concerned about what's going on here. And so she walks to his bedroom. She puts his, her ear on her door and he, she hears him say this, dear Jesus, if you want to see your mother again. <laughs> now this story is funny because this kid <laughs> wanted something and uh, he's like, I don't know if God's going to give me what I want. So I've got to do some, I got to do whatever I can do to get God to do what I want him to do. And while that story is funny, I think we can all relate with this question, will God provide? Will God give us what we want? Will God give us what we need? I think maybe it's one thing if you just decide that you want something like this kid wanted this bicycle and then you just got ask God for it. I think we can understand, well, maybe, maybe he shouldn't have gotten a bicycle or it's not the end of the world if this kid did not get a bicycle. But I think it is even harder when you think God has led you to do something or the thing that you want is a good and a right and a godly thing and your desire for it is good and right, your motivation for it is right, and God does nothing. What do you do in those kinds of situations? How can you live your life in a way that you can trust God, even when it seems that he is not doing what you want him to do? Or maybe put another way, here's the question we're going to look at this morning, and that's this. What does it look like to live with an abundance mindset? In other words, especially when things are not going the way that you want, when you're not getting the things that you want, even when they are good, how can we live in such a way that we can actually trust that God will provide what we need when we need it? Now, when I say abundance, again, I'm not talking about, you know, name it and claim it. If I just got to say the right things, do the right things, have enough faith, then God will get me what I need. Whether, whether, here's what I mean by this idea of an abundance mindset. Um, 
It is worth understanding that much of the conflict that you and I will read in the Old Testament and even in the stories that we've read so far in the book of Genesis is due to people not trusting in the abundance of God and therefore going and taking for themselves in their own timing. And so instead of trusting that there is enough, that God will provide, that God will do what we need when we need it, they go and take for themselves and it leads to all sorts of problems. Now you see this, once you know this is a theme, you'll see this in all sorts of stories. In fact, again, if you've been with us this year, as we've been going Going through Genesis, you will undoubtedly, if you think back, you'll see this theme repeated. In fact, Adam and Eve, right? They didn't trust the the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, that God will give them wisdom in his right timing, so they go and take for themselves, leads to problems. And the story of Cain and Abel, where Cain and Abel uh, give sacrifices to God, God accepts Abel's sacrifice, he rejects Cain's sacrifice, and Cain gets really upset, and God says to Cain, hey, if you do what is right, there will be enough for you. Your sacrifices will be accepted, but he doesn't, and he kills his brother Abel. Uh, If you're with us a few weeks ago when we read the story of Canaan and Ham and Noah and Noah's wife, right? That was a story of Ham taking for himself instead of trusting in himself or trusting in the Lord. Even the Tower of Babel is a group of people doing from the, doing for themselves what they would want God to do and they're in his own timing. And people take for themselves. They don't trust that God has enough or God will provide. And then, there, and then therefore bad things happen when they try to force it. And so today, uh, as we continue, we're going to be in chapter 13 and 14 of the book of Genesis. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn there. Um, If not, there's a Bible around you. You can use that one. And if you do not own a Bible, we'd love for you to take that one home. It's our gift to you. Today, we're going to read the story about Abram not taking and actually instead trusting. We're going to read actually two stories in these chapters of Abram actually trusting in the abundance of God, and we can kind of see and reflect what that might mean for us. And so uh, if you were with us last week, we, we started the story of Abram. God reveals himself to this man named Abram. His name is eventually going to be changed to Abraham. So if you're fam- familiar with Abraham, it's the same guy. So he, in faith, to be committed, he trusts the Lord. He leaves everything he knows. He takes his family and he provisions on a journey to this land that God is going to show him. He gets to the land. There's a, there's a famine that breaks out, so he leaves. He tries to fix the problem. He goes to Egypt. He says that his wife is his sister and gives his sister, actually his wife, to Pharaoh to marry. And so there's a lot there. We talked about last week. Um, but anyway, things did not go well. They get kicked out of Egypt once uh, Pharaoh figures out what's going on here. And so we're going to pick up the story. They're leaving Egypt, and we're going to see what happens when Abram actually trusts that God can't provide, that there is enough, and we'll see what happens. Okay, so uh, Genesis chapter 13, starting in verse 1. This is Abram and his family and his possessions, his animals, all the people that are with him. They are leaving Egypt, going back to the land that God had originally told him to go to. And it says this in verse th- chapter 1, verse 13. Or for, chapter 13, verse 1. It says, Abram went up from Egypt to Negev. He, his wife, and all he had, and Lot went with him. So Abram turns from Egypt, him and his whole traveling party, he gets his wife back, which is a good thing, and his nephew Lot. Now this is significant because Lot is going to play an important role as we'll even see today. Um, They're heading back in the direction of Canaan. So if you don't know where Negev is, it doesn't really matter, but they're leaving Egypt. They're going back to the area that they were in before there was a famine when Abram tried to fix the problem and he leaves it. Verse 2, it says this, Abram was very rich in livestock, silver, and gold. He went by stages from Negev to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had formerly been. So this is going to where he has been before. 
to the site where he had built an altar when God first called him. And Abram called on the name of the Lord there. Verse 5, Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks, herds, and tents. But the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together. For they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. Uh, Verse 7, And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. So they're traveling back to this area. Abram has a ton of people, big, uh, well, tons of people in his traveling party, lots of people working for him and all this sort of thing. And then he has Lot, his nephew, who also seems to have a lot of possessions, a lot of things. And so uh, Abram's and Lot's herdsmen begin to argue because the land is not big enough to support all of their animals and all of the people that are with them. And so they're traveling from place to place. Again, remember, Abram doesn't have a place of his own because he left where he was. To, to do what God had asked him to do. Now, we don't exactly know uh, for sure what, God, what Abram's relationship with God actually looked like, how they interacted, what he even thought about God. Again, a lot of this is brand new to him. However, verse 4, when it talks about he goes back to the site where he was, he built an altar of the Lord there. He, he is trying to follow and honor God. Now, the irony here is that God blesses Abram so much that Abram and Lot can no longer stay together as there is no land in their areas where they're traveling that can support both large parties and their animals. And so they have to separate. It's too big. There's too many people. There's too many animals. And so here's what Abram says, verse 8. So Abram said to Lot, please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we are relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I will go to the right. If you go to the right, I will go to the left. And so that's what's going on here. Then Abram, again, he says we got to separate. And then what he's doing here is he's giving Lot, his nephew, the choice of what direction and what land area Lot wants to settle in. Now, again, this is a big deal. Abram is the superior. He probably has more possessions, more power. He's the kind of the patriarch of this family unit of the people that are with him. He, if anyone that has, should be able to choose, it's Abram. Abram should be able to choose. And yet in deference and humility and maybe love and care, he's going to let Lot choose where Lot wants to go first. Again, remember, as I mentioned, so much of the conflict that you and I read when we read through the Old Testament is due to people not trusting in the abundance of God, not trusting that there is enough for everybody in God's family. And so they go and they take for themselves. Again, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, uh, Ham and Canaan, uh, the Tower of Babel. And I think, especially if you read and then you reread scriptures, because you'll see this in, in, in stories that we haven't even got to as well. I absolutely think this is meant to be commendable on Abram's part, especially as you see how things unfold in the rest of the Old Testament, it is meant to be commendable on Abram's part that he lets Lot go first, that he lets Lot choose. And what's going to happen is Lot's going to choose what looks like the better option. But, but for here, for, for a second here, again, the question for us this morning is, what does it look like to live with an abundance mindset? What does it look like to, to trust that there is enough for everyone in the kingdom of God? Well, I think one of the things we see in this story is this, and that is abundance is prioritizing others. 
Abundance is caring for others. Abundance is sometimes letting other people go first. Now, here's where you have to have wisdom. I'm not saying that we shouldn't work hard and pursue goals and have dreams and chase after that job and try to interview. I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. Absolutely. We should do those things. I think those those things are good. Those things are are God-honoring. But in wisdom, sometimes uh, you do it. uh, You think of other people before yourself. And what is happening in this situation is that Abram is humbly viewing a lot as deserving and as worthy and as able to choose for himself what he thinks he what is good. What Abram is doing is essentially saying, you're my equal. I'm going to let you go instead of doing what I have every right to do, and that is choose what land I want to go to first. And again, for us today, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is following in the way of Jesus, where Jesus treated us better than we deserved, and so we treat others the way Jesus treated us. That when Jesus talks about it in Matthew, uh, for example, in his Sermon on the Mount, you know, the golden rule, treat others the way that you want to be treated. He is undoubtedly picking up these themes in the Old Testament saying, when you do so, you are actually trusting in the Lord. Abram, again, remember, he is the superior in this situation, and he is letting Lot choose. He is letting Lot go first. He is trusting that there is enough for both of them. And so he let Lot, lets Lot make a decision. And here's what Lot does. Verse 10. It says, Lot looked out and saw the entire plain of the Jordan as far as Zoar was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We'll get to that story in a few weeks. What you're meant to say here is this is a good place. When it says the Lord's garden, this is the garden of Eden. There are rivers, there are trees, and it looks lush. It looks good for growing fruits and vegetables. This is a, this is a Eden-like place, or so he thinks. He says he looks, it looks good to him. And so Lot says, I want to go over there. Verse 11, so Lot chose the entire plain of Jordan for himself. Now you would think, okay, that's a good thing. It looks Eden-like, so it's got to be good. Then it says this, it says, then Lot journeyed eastward and they separated from each other. If you've been with us, we've said that's a red flag. Every time so far, when somebody has gone east, things have not gone well. When they have gone east, they've gone further from the presence of God, and bad things happen. So this is red flag east, so this probably means it's not going to end well. And they separated from each other. Verse 12, Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil, sinning immensely against the Lord. Again, we're gonna, there's a story about that we'll get to later. But again, he picks a place that looks really, really good. And as it's going to turn out, it is not at all as things appear. He journeys east. Again, that's a red flag. And Abram settles in parts of the land of Canaan, which as we're going to see, is going to be the land that, uh, that the Lord promised to show Abram and that he's actually end up going to end up giving him and his descendants. But Lot, however, goes to the place that looks better and he ends up dwelling near some wicked and evil cities. And then here's what happens. Verse 14. After Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, look from the place where you are, you and your, I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. 16, I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up and walk around the land uh, through its length and its width, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and went to live in the oaks near Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. 
So again, what's happening? Lot leaves, and Adam's blessings, they continue to get bigger, and they continue to get better. God originally, he, he says, the place that he is in the land of Canaan, God says, this is the land I am going to give you. Now, this is a step up, because in verse 12, or sorry, chapter 12, last week, when God originally calls Abram, he says, go to the land that I will show you, but he does not actually indicate that this land will be given to Abram. Okay, he just says, I want you to go somewhere. Now he's being told it will be given to him and his offspring. Now, that sounds great. Good job, Abram. It sounds good. If you were here last week, you will remember that Abram has no children and his wife Sarai is barren. So this sounds really good, but you've got to be thinking, how is this actually going to happen? I have no kids. However, God still promises something big. Now, again, we're, we're looking at this idea. What does it look like to live with an abundance mindset? I think the order of what's happening in this story is significant for us. Abram trusts God, and then God blesses him. And I think that's helpful for us, again, for us to remember this, this, this reality, that abundance comes from obedience. So abundance and living with this idea that I'm going to trust God, it comes with obedience because as we obey, we see God's faithfulness and his goodness and his love. And it allows us in the future to live with this idea of abundance, that there is enough, that God does care, that God will provide because he's done it in the past. Now, hear me. I'm not saying you will get everything you want. I'm not saying you're going to get the bicycle at the driveway at 6 a.m. That's silver and blue, right? However, and this is the tension we have to live with when we read the scriptures, we should not discredit the blessings God gives when we are obedient. We should not discredit those things. However, for us, we have to be clear, it does not mean these blessings are going to come in the form of material provisions or material things. Uh, many times, doing the right God-honoring thing that takes work leads to better marriages, or maybe when it comes to raising your kids, or relationships with others, or contentment, or peace, or joy, these things that the Spirit of God gives us as we walk with them, many times these are the blessings of walking with the Lord. It's not that you're going to get the dream house and everything that you want, and your bank account's going to be huge. It's not necessarily saying that is what's going to happen, but it's what's, what I'm saying here is that as we obey and walk with the Lord, we begin to experience His peace, His grace, and love in ways that we miss when we do not do that. In fact, many believers, I would even say many of you sitting in this room or watching online have actually felt blessed in your life, regardless if, if someone on the outside would call you stereotypically blessed. I would be venture to guess if you've been walking with the Lord for a while, there have been times in your life where you have just felt God's grace and his abundance and his love and his mercy, even when you have the debt. Even when someone on the outset said, you live there, you have this type of job and you feel blessed. I think what this story is showing us, although in this case, uh, uh, part of Abraham's blessing has been in the material sense. What we see throughout scripture is the ability to have an abundance mindset often comes when we trust the Lord because we've seen that he is good. We've seen that he has provided. We've seen that he's walked with us and so that we can trust him. And so we've got to walk with him to experience the abundance he has for us. And this is what Abraham is, or Abram is doing here. And then we're going to see another story. So, so what's happening in verse chapter, in chapter 14, that's how chapter 13 ends, right? Lot is living in this area. Uh, Abram goes over here. The, the place that Lot chooses looks really, really good. But there's a problem. 
right? There's a lot of even evil and wicked people, cities, and kings around there. And so we're not going to read the first seven verses of chapter 14, but the first seven verses of chapter 14 are a bunch of kings in the area where Abram and Lot live, and it's who is like an alliance with who and who's going to fight who. It's basically drawing sides. And then it says eight, and this says this in verse eight. We'll pick up in verse eight because this is relevant for us. So all these kings in the area, who's on whose team, who doesn't like each other, who's going to fight who, verse eight. Then the king of Sodom, the king of Gomorrah, this is the area where Lot and all of his traveling party lives, the king of Admah and the king of Zeboim and the king of Bela, that is Zoar, went and lined up for battle in the Siddim Valley against king Kedorlomeir of Elam, king title of Goim, king Amaphrael of Shinar, and king Ariok of Elasar, four kings against five. So that's a lot of stuff. Here's why this matters. Verse 10, okay? Now in the Siddim Valley contained many asphalt pits. And as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, so kings of Sodom and Gomorrah, they're losing this battle. Some fell into them, but the rest fled to the mountains. Verse 11, the four kings took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their food and went on. They also took Abram's nephew Lot, his possessions, for he was living in Sodom and they went on. So Lot, living in the area where all these battles are happening, the place that he lives is near a king and kind of these tribal people who are going to lose, who end up losing. And because he lives in proximity, he is taken captive by these rival kings that have all been fighting, right? The land area that he chose for himself turns out not to have been wise. Now, to be fair, I don't, some people will say, well, Lot was selfish and how dare he pick this area. I don't necessarily know that it was necessarily wrong on Lot's part to do that. After all, Abram like encouraged and asked him to do so. But again, this is another example of someone seeing what is good in their eyes, taking it, and then it does not end up well for them. He becomes captive, him and all these people with him. Verse 13, it says this, one of the survivors of the area when all these fighting was going on came and told Abram, the Hebrew, who lived near the oaks belonging to Mamre, the Amorite, the brother of Eshcol and the brother of Aner. They were bound by a treaty with Abram. So these two other people, these two other kind of tribal kind of places, they're kind of had developed a peace treaty against one another. They're living peacefully along or around each other. Verse 14. When Abram heard that his relative had been taken prisoner, he assembled his 318 trained men born in his household, and they went in pursuit as far as Dan. So you can see how wealthy Abram is. He has 13, 318 men that are of, of age, old enough to go fight in a battle. There's tons of people in his traveling party, tons of animals. They're going to go try to rescue Lot. Verse 15, and he and his servants deployed against them by night, defeated them, and pursued them as far as Hobah uh, to the north of Damascus. He brought back, this is Abram, all the goods and also his relative Lot and his goods, as well as the women and the other people. So everybody that was taken by the kings and kingdom, uh, Abram rescues them and brings them back. So Abram hears the news that Lot has been taken. He goes in pursuits. He, he goes and brings all of his people and he fights them. Again, you can see how large uh, Abram's wealth was. Uh, he's never described this way in the book of Genesis, but he really is a king in his own right. In this time period of human history, this many people, a lot of kings and kingdoms were actually smaller than what Abram has in his possession. 
Now, maybe to us, Abraham, or Abram is unsurprisingly successful. After all, in Genesis 12, God said he would bless him. Um, however, I don't think that should take away that Abram necessarily knew what was going to happen. I think Abram was probably like, I'm not sure, but we've got to go get Lot back. So he, but he's with him. He blesses him. Uh, Abram wins. And so, uh, so he returns with Lot and all his possessions. And then it says this in verse 17. After Abram had returned from, from defeating Ketolomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the Shava Valley. That is the king's valley. Verse 18, Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest to God most high. So there's a lot of kings, a lot of things going on. Here, here's what's happening. Uh, later, after this victory, after this defeat of Sodom and the kings, the king of Sodom, who was defeated, comes out to meet with Abram, who was victorious. Now, what's likely happening here is a sort of ancient peace treaty. That, that's really what's going on here. Uh, there's an ancient peace treaty that you have this guy who is a king and a priest. So many, many times in the ancient context, whoever was the king of like a kingdom or a nation or a tribe often also served in a priestly role as like the intercessor between the people um, and the gods that they might worship. So this king priest named Machizodek kind of uh, hosts a peace treaty agreement. He hosted dinner. He's from Salem, which it's pretty much believed pretty unanimously by most scholars today that Salem is actually Jerusalem where the Israelites are eventually going to establish their own capital once the Israelites are in the land. So Melchizedek, the king of Salem, kind of uh, initiates this peace treaty. Uh, and, and while he did not fight against Abram, you might even think he might likely want even to himself to go into a peace treaty with Abram after he saw how successful Abram was. Now, Nothing is known about Melchizedek other than what is read in these couple of verses, but he turns into a person of note in scripture and in other ancient Jewish literature because of what he does in these verses. So Melchizedek kind of hosts these two kings, offers a peace treaty, and here's what he says, verse 19. He blessed him and said to Abram, blessed, uh, Abram is blessed by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high who has handed over your enemies to you. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So uh, Machizotek here states, or perhaps this was a prayer over Abram, a blessing over him. Now, doing so, we should likely infer that Machizodek is greater and has more power or, and or authority than Abram because he's the one that's kind of called this treaty together, and he's the one who is speaking authoritatively over Abram. So in terms of like power structure, in terms of what's going on in this land area, Machizodek is probably greater than Abram and then, of course, King Sodom who lost. And so we'll, we'll say more about Machizodek in just a second, but here's how this section ends, okay? Here's how chapter 14 ends. The king of Sodom said to Abram, Give me the people, but take the possessions for yourself. He's talking about like the plunder from the victory. But give him, he want, Abram, Sodom wants his people back. But Abram said to the king of Sodom, I have raised my hand in an oath to the Lord, God most high, the creator of heaven and earth, that I will not take a thread or sandal strap or anything that belongs to you so that you can never say, I made Abram rich. I will take nothing except what the servants have eaten, but as for the share of men who came with me, Aner, Eshkal, and Mamre, they can take their share. So, so, so here's what's happening. Even though Sodom has lost, he still wants Abram to give him back everything, right? Or at least give him back his people. Now, to be clear, as the victor, uh, Abram does not have to give him anything. 
He doesn't have to give him anything. In fact, in contrast to Melchizedek, the king of Sodom here expresses no deference to Abram and in fact dishonors him by, this, by his request. This is a very dishonoring thing to say, the person who beats you, give me all of my stuff back. And of course, Abram, as the victor, doesn't have to do it. Right? He already showed that he could fight him and beat him again if they want to go to war again. Abram has not, doesn't have to do anything for this king. But in response, Abram actually ends up returning everything, not just the people that were in that area, but also the plunder. He gives them everything. He gives them everything because he does not want to be accused by Sodom or anyone else in the area that Abram's wealth became from Abram's own might and Abram's own power. He takes nothing except what his people had already eaten probably during however long these battles took. And then he lets his allies who came with him, he lets them take the spoils that they deserve because they were a part of the battle too. But for Abram, he and his people did not take anything. And so Abram takes nothing. Now, what we see happening here is that in chapter 13, Abram allows Lot to take what he wants, right? He allows Lot to go to the area that looks good to him. And here, again, he does not take what he rightfully could have. Abram rightfully could have, with no shame, nothing wrong about it, taken what he had gotten from Sodom and these people. But instead, again, this certainly is a high point of trust in Abram's story, or one of them. He is faithful, and he trusts that, no, I'm going to let the Lord provide for me. I'm not going to do it on my own. To make this even a bigger deal, remember, if you were here last week, the last time that Abram was in this area, after he gave up everything to follow the Lord, there was what? A famine. There was not enough for his family, or at least that's what he thought, for the people, for his animals, so he leaves. And yet knowing the last time he was here, there was not enough. The fact that he is willingly giving up wealth and security because he acquired it by force is certainly a big deal. It's certainly a testament of faith. And again, when it comes to us uh, thinking about what does it look like to live with an abundance mindset, here's what Abraham is showing us in these stories. That abundance is trusting in the Lord's provision. Abundance is trusting in the Lord's provision. That's what it is. Now again, hear me. This is where it gets a little tricky, okay? This is where it gets tricky. I am not at all saying there are not times where we shouldn't get out and work hard and overcome obstacles and pursue what God has has for us. In fact, sometimes that's exactly what you need to do. Sometimes you do need to work hard and you do need to push through obstacles and you you don't need to give up even though it looks like you're not sure how you're going to figure out or how you're going to do the thing that God is leading you to do. But even as you pursue those things, even as you do those things, really trusting in the Lord allows you and I to live with abundance. It allows us to live with abundance, right? In other words, it's saying we don't have to force our way into going first. That you can love people and forgive your coworker, even if they won't change your behavior towards you. That you can pursue that dream, that thing you want, knowing that your identity, your success, God's love for you, has nothing to do with whether or not you get the thing that you want. It is trusting that the Lord will give us what we need, even if it is not always what we want in that moment. Again, one of the things we say often here at New City, if you're a follower of Jesus, that you have nothing to prove and you have no one to impress. If you actually believe that, that's an abundance mindset. That I don't have to prove myself to other people or to God because Jesus has done it for me. That I don't have to impress other people because because of Jesus, that God looks at me the same way he looks at Jesus. Righteous, holy, blameless, pure, uh, worthy of inheritance. This is an abundance mindset that I don't have to prove myself to other people, that God loves me where I am. In fact, even financial generosity, this is a practical example of an abundance mindset, right? Many of you faithfully give to New City Church. One of my favorite things to talk about 
you were, uh, Christina and I were hanging out with some neighbors on Friday, and we're, you know, we're telling about the church and all those sort of things, and I always love telling people that we moved into a new city the week before COVID. I'm sorry, we moved into this building the week before COVID, right? And it was, our rent doubled, and it was the worst. Like, I was like, how are we going to do this? I'm going to have to get another job. We're going to start over, meet our house again, whatever. But you, so many of you were faithful. In fact, one of the things I hear often as I meet with various people is how expensive it is to live here and how much so many of you are trying to save it for a house. And even as you're trying to save it for a house, what are you doing? You are faithfully giving to the work that God is doing through New City Church. That is you trusting in the Lord. This is what I want. This is what I'm saving for. This is what I'm working for. But I'm still going to lay aside a portion of what God has given me to trust him. That is living with an abundance mindset, even when it is hard. And so what happens, however, if we take God out of the picture, we're trying to get these things for ourselves, is that as we chase, we get more and more things, we pursue more and more things, and they're never enough, that we're never content, that we're never satisfied, right? Or we're buying things, we're trying to have a certain standard of living just to, proceed, just to, to keep up with the Joneses or for other people to, to look at you or to think of you in a certain way, right? Being generous while saving, for example, is an abundance mindset, right? When we're trusting the Lord, here's what I want, here's what I want to do, but I'm going to be gener- financially, generous financially. That's trusting in the Lord. God, I've got these coworkers that, that's a jerk that I, that I, honestly, if I could say this word, it sounds bad, but like, I hate them. I don't like that person, right? But God, I'm going to trust that you love them and that you care for me, and so I'm going to forgive them, and I'm going to continue to love them and to be kind for them. Abundance is trusting in the Lord's provision so that we can do the things that Abram did in this story. There is no doubt. Again, for us, we know how these stories end, so we kind of forget what it was like for them. Abram does not know what's going to happen. Abram did not know that when Lot chose the better, what seeming to be the better position, better place, that things would actually go better for Abram for letting him do that. Abram, as we're going to see these next couple weeks as we continue to read the story of Abram, is going to be blessed by God for this decision. But at this moment, he does not exactly know how God is going to provide. In fact, he even gives a tenth of everything he has to Machizedek. Like he even gives stuff away after this victory because he wants to trust the Lord. That's what he wants to do. Abundance is trusting in the Lord's provision. Now, last thing I want to do, um, I want to look at the, the significance of Machizodek really quickly. So he becomes a very prominent player in ancient uh, religious Jewish literature because of what's happening here. And he actually makes a couple of other appearances in the Bible. The first one is in Psalm chapter 110. Now, Psalm 110 was written in and or perhaps by King David when David was king over Israel many years later, hundreds of years later when they're in the promised land. Now, Psalm 110 is about the idealized Davidic king in other words, it's about a future king who will one day rule and reign over all people throughout all, through, through which all of the people of the world will be blessed. So it's a, few, a future king who's going to reestablish God's kingdom on the earth. And then in verse 4 of 110, it says this. It'll be on the screen. It says, the Lord has sworn an oath and will not take it back. You are a priest forever according to the pattern of Melchizedek. Right? What Psalm 110 is talking about here is about a future king who will also act like a priest. In other words, this king will also be an intercessor for the people, for God. Right? And so if you're thinking New Testament, you might know who this is going to. Who do we have in the New Testament? That's a king, also an intercessor for the people. There you go. If you don't know the answer at church, it's always Jesus. Okay? Just, you're probably right. 
Scripture is a unified story that points to Jesus. That's what's happening here. And so it should not surprise us then that the authors of the New Testament also picked up Machizodek as a type of analogy or a type of Christ. So I'm just going to read one passage in Hebrews, uh, in Hebrews, written in the first century. Now, again, it's helpful to know, by the time of the first century, many, the, the Machizodek had been written about a lot in Jewish literature. And so he had been a kind of a, pro, a popular figure. He would have been on the minds of the first century Jews and Christians. And the, and the writer of Hebrews says, this in chapter 6, starting verse 13. 13 it'll be on the screen. For when God made a promise to Abraham, so God's going to eventually change his name to Abraham, the same guy, uh, since he had no one to greater to swear by, he swore by himself. So God swore by himself because he's the greatest thing there is. He said, I will indeed bless you and I will greatly multiply you. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham obtained the promise. We're actually going to get into that next week of what this pro- how he actually obtains the promise of, this, of a kid and offspring and all these sorts of things. Verse 16, for people swear by something greater than themselves, and for them a confirming oath ends every dispute. Because God wanted to show his unchangeable purpose even more clearly to the heirs of the promise, he guaranteed it with an oath. In other words, those that would come after him, and of course those in the time of Jesus, God made an oath to Abraham so that we could look back and see, see, God has always promised to do this. He has always promised to redeem his people. Verse 18, so that, through two, so that through two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we have a fled for refuge, that we might have strong encouragement to, see, to seize the hope that is set before us. There's a lot going on there, but I'm just going to keep reading. Verse 19, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. This is relevant. You had the tabernacle, then you had the temple. Inside the temple, you had a place that only priests could go, and in the back, one-third of the temple, you had a place called the Holy of holies, that the high priest could only go once a year. This is where God's presence dwelt. No one else was ever allowed in there. But yet this new king priest was going to go in before the presence of God on our behalf so that we might be found acceptable to God. That's what it's talking about here. Verse 20, Jesus, so Jesus is the one who entered into this holies of holies for us, has entered there on our behalf as a forerunner because he has become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Uh, chapter 7, verse 1, for this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God most high, met Abram and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness. That's what Melchizedek means. Then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Salem means peace. That's where you get the word shalom as well. Verse 3, without father, mother, or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the son of God, he remains a priest forever. What the author of Hebrews is talking about as he's setting Jesus on analogy to Melchizedek is that nothing else is said of Melchizedek, right? We don't know where he came from. We don't know his lineage. We don't know when he died. We don't know any of these things. And so what the author is saying here is that Jesus is legitimate, is our legitimate king priest who has no beginning, he has no end, and he is superior to all things. And then if you continue to read verse chapter 7 of Hebrews, which we won't this morning, it goes on to say again, as we mentioned here, that Abram gave a tenth of his plunder to Melchizedek, and that Melchizedek end up go, goes on and blessing him, ends up blessing Abram as his superior. So Melchizedek blesses Abram, even though Melchizedek is greater than Abram. And what the author of Hebrews is trying to tell us is that Jesus is the true and better Melchizedek. This is what we talk about. Scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. You begin to see these stories in new light in the New Testament as you understand what has happened 
happening in the Old Testament. That the promised blessing of God through Abraham is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. That Jesus is the one who has come to do for us and for the whole world what we could not do for ourselves. Or put another way, here is our question this morning. What does it look like to live with an abundance mindset? We've talked about some of those things. But in terms of us today, living out this abundance mindset, here's what we need to remember. That at the end of the day, Jesus is our abundance. He is our promise. He is our redeemer. He is the one through whom we can look at and know that all God's promises are yes and amen, that God will do what he said he is going to do. The good news of the gospel is that God came in the form of a man named Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, that he defeated sin and death for us, that he resurrected into new life after dying on the cross and three days later, uh, showing his dominance over sin and evil and the demonic spirits, uh, demonic spirits of the world to say, I am king over all these things. And that for you and I, we can experience the great and mercy of God by trusting in Jesus, by repenting of our sin, which means just being honest about our brokenness and asking Jesus to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. The gospel is a gospel of abundance, that his grace never runs out, that his mercy never runs out, that his back will never be turned to you at any point. You, you and I turn to God, no matter what we did last week, last month, last night, this morning, God will always welcome us home because Jesus took our sin on his behalf. That God the Father gave us everything through God the Son who walks with us through God the Spirit. Jesus is our abundance, that we don't have to prove ourselves to God or anybody else. We have to go and take and go and do that because of Christ we can be seen as holy and blameless and lovely and pure. Last thing I'll read, I know I'm going a little bit longer than normal here this morning. This is what Jesus is talking about when he talks about the kingdom of God. Jesus says this in chapter 13. He gives a little parable of what the kingdom of heaven is like. He says this, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure buried in a field that a man found and reburied. Then in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. When he found one priceless pearl, he went and sold everything he had and he bought it. That this thing that I have found is worth more than anything I could ever get anywhere else. And so I'm going to search for that. Jesus has come to be our abundance, to give us what we could never earn on our own so that you and I can experience the blessings of God that he promised through Abraham, that he will not give up, from his, give up on his people. And then he will welcome anyone and everyone who turns to him. That's who our God is.